This is your brother James, and this is God's Will Podcast. This is uh, part two of my introduction episode into my new podcast, God's Will, and we will be looking into the questions that arise from apologetics. I start off with the question meaning. I move into purpose. What is our purpose, and what is the purpose of the you know, our lives and and the things that are coming against us. And then I move into morality and then to finish off with morality kind of segues into the story of Exodus when God is essentially punishing his people for complaining in the desert. Uh, the question of meaning. So meaning is like, why are we, you know, what is the meaning of life? Okay. So the question that comes up with that is what is true love? And as a Christian, you know that that is your meaning is to express love to others. Um, the way Christ expressed love to us through his uh, death, res uh, death, resurrection and or death, burial and resurrection. So, um, that is the question. Now, to, to kind of re-emphasize re how shallow our language is, I'm going to go into the different words for love in the Greek language, which, which is what the New Testament is written in. Uh, the first word, obviously, is agape. Uh, we've all heard this. If you've been going to church for any considerable amount of time, you've heard the word agape before. It's uh, unconditional love or the love God has for us, which is no matter what we do, he, can still, he still loves us despite, despite what we do. He still loves us. The love a mother has for their child, the father has for their son, uh, daughter, whatever. The the unconditional love you have for a family member where it's no matter what they do, you still love them. Uh, the love of uh, phileo, um, phileo love is uh, a deep friendship or love for a brother or sister. Okay, um, Eros, the sexual passion love, which is the love you have for your wife. Um, you know, you could have this love for somebody else at any point in time. However, that is uh, a word that's used in the Bible. So the, the, these are all the ones used in the Bible. The, the word storge, which is also another word for love in the Bible, for companionship or someone, you know, someone who's there for you. Now, there's other words in the Greek for love as well, and I'm just going to go over those briefly. So there's a word called ludus. This is not in the Bible. However, it is a, it is a word the Greeks use for love, which is a playful kind of love or a, a flirting, um, flirting type of love, love that you would have when you're uh, interested in somebody. Uh, pragma is a long-standing love or a love a couple, love of a couple together for a long time. Uh, that's another word that they, uh, the Greeks use for a love. And then also a word, fellatia, two types of self-love. Um, fellatia is in reference to narcissism or also to love and accept yourself. So there's two... There's two ways that you would use this in a sentence in the Greek language is one is in reference to a narcissistic person, someone who's like thinks of themselves too highly and doesn't really understand, you know, where they actually are at um, and they can't see, you know, from another person's point of view. And then the ability to accept yourself is also uh, the same word, which is kind of weird. But if you think about it, like we use the word dear in two different ways, like the, in reference to an animal or in reference to, you know, a, uh, uh, the introduction to a letter. So this, 
you could also apply that this way where it's, you know, depending on the sentence, it can mean two different things. Uh, I referenced this on uh, www.yesmagazine.org um, hap, uh, slash happiness slash the ancient Greeks, six words for love. Okay. So it, it just shows you that we have one word for love and they have seven or technically eight if you count the last one as two. Okay. So there's just a lot of things that we we don't see when we read our Bible sometimes. And um, uh, I just wanted to read the love chapter to everybody real quick. It says, and this is in the New King James, it's First uh, Corinthians 13. It says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I've become nothing more than a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, <clears throat> And though I have all faith that I can remove mountains, but I but I have not love, I am nothing. I am nothing. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and give up my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy, does not parade itself, and is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, and does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. And whether there are tongues, they will cease. And whether it, there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. For when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child and I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. For now I know in part, but then I will know also as I am known. Now abide these three, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So that's what God sees love as. And that's the way we should see love as believers, okay? And um, it's it's just uh, when you talk about meaning or what is the what is the meaning of life, you know, and true love isn't really the, the emphasis of, of your life, then, you know, that's where we need to get realigned. When we're trying to be God's, you know, God's body, his hand, like what we, we want to bring people to the understanding of the Lord and c come to a place of repentance, right? Um, there's one thing you got to keep in mind is if I can talk someone into following Jesus, someone can talk them out of it. So my goal is never to talk someone into it. All right. If we want to defend the gospel, if somebody's like, slandering the gospel God, and we're trying to like defend why it's the right way. God's going to let us do that. And that's the key is God will let us do that. Not him. He's not the one doing that on the last day. When we all die and go to heaven, those people who are slandering will know that they were wrong. And it's not up to us. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And just, I just want to encourage you with that. So that way you're not under this, you know, intense compulsion to have to do something like that. Uh, the word speaks for itself. However, you can defend your faith. Okay. There's, you know, um, the, the, the verse I like to use for this is, is Hebrews 12, 14 for this whole concept is pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And we cannot argue from a place of this is the way we do it. And that's it. 
This is the way we do it. And that is it. That is, you know, typical conservative believer Christian will, you know, hold that stance. And there's really no budging for them. However, you know, and for you personally in your faith, you should feel that way. However, that's not a way to argue, you know, get into a, a discussion with somebody about being Christian because that's not going to help you. It will, it, it won't. And so, um, you know, a bunch of questions that are going to pop up for you. And this is where apologetics comes in. Okay. So the word apologetics, it comes from the Greek, it's the word of Apollonia. And Apollonia is literally translated to give an answer. And, uh, you know, in, in a more def definition form, it's a re reasoned arguments or writings and justification of something. Typically, a theory or religious doctrine is the literal definition of apologetics. Now, the most recent guy who was doing this was a guy named um, uh, Ravi Zacharias, and he got um, got in a lot of trouble after he died. I guess supposedly he had a bunch of like mistresses, or he was going to like massage parlors that were, you know, and he was you know, doing the wrong thing in these places, you know, uh, I, for me, I would like to believe that he was forgiven and I want to know that I will see this man in heaven no matter what, and that God covered his sin. And I believe that that is to be true. And, you know, after someone dies, I just, I don't, it's not that I discount it. It's just, I kind of don't, take a ton i don't take a ton of time to sit there and dwell on the fact that maybe this guy was completely wrong in everything he said which i just don't believe is true um i try to remain you know like yeah this guy sinned it was terrible i i you know i i, I never really looked up I, I never really paid attention too much to robbie zacharias i did a a sermon on apologetics one time so i did you know kind of watch some of his videos but i've never really gotten into him and I always felt like apologetics was a bit of like a debate club for Christians. And I've never really necessarily was against that, but I was more like, what's the purpose, right? I never under really understood the purpose of what he was doing as an apologetics like minister, right? So that being said, I, I don't like to necessarily get into like, yeah, he's, he's wrong. I'm, I don't ever want to quote him or do anything. I, I, I'm not that way. However, it's too bad that somebody that was that influential has this negative connotation. So I'll just leave it at that. But anyway, the couple questions that are going to come up, you know, when you're trying to like either defend your faith or walk up, you know, or, or, or lead someone to Christ, you're going to get questions, right? Where do we come from? One. And how do we explain death? Number two. Okay. So these are, these are two questions that will come up most likely when you're, talking to somebody about the Lord. Okay. So from the beginning, Genesis chapter one through three. Okay. In the beginning was the, uh, in the beginning was the word, or excuse me, that's John one. Excuse me. Uh, God created the heavens and the earth on day one, right? In the beginning. So if you go back to G Genesis one, you learn um, one, like where we came from, what God did, right? Number two is you learn that there's an enemy. Okay. And because of this, you know, we have death because there's an enemy and he's out there to steal, kill and destroy. But 
there's a short period of time you have on the earth and it's up to you to decide whether you're going to follow Jesus or not. And, you know, there's somewhere in the Bible where it talks about how everyone's going to get the opportunity to follow Christ. And um, I do believe that. I know it's hard to kind of wrap your mind around that, you know, every single person gets the opportunity, but I'm sure it's probably true. And I trust God with that. But the enemy has a game plan. So before I get into the enemy's game plan, which is in Genesis 3, let's let's look at Genesis 1 and 2. So in Genesis 1, if you read it, there's a term God in there, you know, capital G, God. In the Hebrew language, this is the word Elohim, E-L-O-H-I-M. This is God in the third person. This is the creator God. This is God who is far away creating the earth, okay? In chapter 2... Verse 4, there is a word, Lord, or uh, the term Lord God, capital L, like Lord God. This is the first time you see the, a different word in the Hebrew language, um, Yahweh, which is God with us, the, the relational God, the God that's right there with us. And this is very important because in our, in our book, in the Bible, and it's very important that this happens, that God put this here in the first two, three chapters. Okay, it's very important. It's because he wants us to know that this is what we need to know because it's at the very beginning. It's very important to understand that our language in the English language, it is very shallow. And that's why, you know, this is my opinion. Okay. Don't take this, but I think it's very valid. Everybody complains about the church in America. Okay. And everybody's like, Oh, it's water. You know, the, the prosperity gospel, all this stuff, which I'm going to talk about. I'm going to have an episode on that pretty soon. Um, and I will talk in depth about, you know, the church in America and what I believe. But I truly believe these churches have come about because of how shallow our language is. And the Bible does just is unable. Our language is unable to represent what the Bible is actually telling us, which requires a lot of study on our end to understand what the Bible's really saying. Okay, our language just cannot is unable to portray what the Bible is completely showing us. And that's where you get the shallow breakoffs of of the Christian faith. And that's where you get all these arguments, dissensions and everything. But people just don't want to acknowledge the fact that our language is so shallow that it's hard for us to really come come into line together. So it's not something to complain about. Going back to my Hebrews 1214 uh, quote where it says pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So if we, if people see us arguing with each other and creating divisions and all this stuff, do you see how this is completely unproductive and nobody wants to be a Christian? Nobody's even like looking to do that. And even if they are, they're not actually getting the, the correct representation of what it is. And that's on us. There you go. So anyway, um, going back in Genesis 2, verse 4, it says, Lord God, the relational God. Okay. Now we can go to chapter 3. Chapter 3, it says, now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which, by the way, this is verse 1, which the Lord God had made. Lord God, Yahweh, personal God. He made that. He made the serpent. Okay. And he said to the woman, has God Elohim, so it's very important that you, that you hear this, 
as Elohim indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Okay, let's go back to where, you know, it's, it's uh, God says this to Eve and Adam. So it says in chapter 2, verse 16, it says, And the Lord God commanded that the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Okay, so this is what the the serpent, the devil, is telling Eve. Is he's referring to chapter two, verse sixteen and seventeen. Okay, so let's go back in verse um, the end of verse one. It says, "You shall not eat of every tree of the garden." Has God indeed said, "You shall not eat of every tree of the garden"? Excuse me. So, first thing, the devil does, he makes God seem he makes God out to be someone who's very far away. He used the term Elohim. He used the third person God Hebrew in the Hebrew language. The term Elohim is the third person God, the God that's far away. He uses this term first when he's trying to deceive you. So that way you don't believe God is right next to you and seeing everything that you do. He's making out, he's making God out to be this person who's very far away. Okay. There you go. First thing he does. Second thing. Um, I'm going to, I'm actually just going to read verse two all the way down to the second thing. So, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God, Elohim, so he gets us to also say Elohim, has said, you shall not eat of it, for shall you touch it, lest you die, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. So in verse 4, it says, then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So first thing he does is he makes God out to be far away. He makes us believe he is far away by waiting for us to say, you know, the term Elohim, where we know there's something visible that we show the devil because we can't give him that much credit. He doesn't know what's in our, in our minds. He can plant things in our minds, but we don't, he doesn't actually know. We give him either by words or by action. We show him that God is far away. And then the third thing he does is he lies to us in verse four. He lies to her. He says, you will not surely die. And that was a lie, even though it's not a physical death, it was a spiritual death. They get cut off from the presence of God. Now, going back to our original purpose is like, why do we need to know this? The purpose is, is we want to know what our purpose actually is on this earth. Okay. You're going to get questions like, why are we here? And how do you explain death? Okay. Well, first off the death, you know, there's a physical death and then there's a spirit, you know, a spiritual death. You want to die spiritually on this earth before you go to heaven so that way you're reborn and you go to heaven and you're in your spiritual body and uh, you're no longer in sin and everything is better. It's just better. Okay. That's why you don't want to experience the spiritual death at the end of the age. You want to experience it here on earth. Okay. And it is like, despite popular belief, this is a painful process. I mean, those of you who do follow Jesus understand that to follow him, you had to give up everything. And it's, you know, it's hard. But, you know, as you grow in the faith, you realize that it was worth every single, you know, painful moment. Now, um, yeah, so anyway, what is our purpose? Our purpose, you know, through Jesus Christ was to overcome all the uh, attempts of the enemy to destroy us 
and to overcome these things in this world during our time here on earth is to show that Jesus did do, do was who he was, was who he said he was. He rose from the dead and his Holy Spirit lives in us. So that way we can overcome the things of this world and the devil and all of his schemes. That is a possible, that is possible in this life. And as a believer, this is, this is what you should be portraying. This is your purpose. Okay. Nobody told you what your purpose is. This is it. This is it. It's to portray that Jesus is who he said he was. And he rose from the dead. And there's only one way to the father and that's through him. Okay. I know there's a lot of good things in other religions. Christianity, not a religion. It's a relationship. And if it was a religion, we should be pitied amongst the, the, the most pity people on, on earth. Okay. So that's first off. Okay. Now what is, what should we do with these? You know, we, we understand what the enemy is going to do, right? What should we do? And he, here's the key. Now, if you go to Ephesians chapter six, it talks, it talks about, you know, our, our response to the enemy's tactics. Our response is to one, you know, put on the armor of God. And that's where this comes from. It says, finally, my brothers, be strong in the Lord and the power of his, of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. Truth, key, remember what I talked about. Having put on the breastplate of, breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with prayer and supplication in the spirit. Being watchful to this end with all per perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador and changed, that in, that, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So that confidence I was talking about earlier, that's exactly what Paul's talking about here. Okay? And I go back to God's will for our life. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, <clears throat> that you abstain from sexual, sexual immorality. Right? That's the first... You know, this is the will of God for your life, your sanctification, the, the process in which you become more and more like Jesus is that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's first. That's in word and thought and in deed. Okay. Word, you're not speaking about sex unless it's with your wife. You're not thinking about sex unless it's with your wife. And you're not having sex unless it's with your wife. That's it. Okay. Um, second one. Uh, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and all things give thanks, for this is the will of God for your life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and all things give thanks. That's another one of God's wills. The other one, 1 Peter 2.15, that, that verse, by the way, was 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, 16, 17, and 18. Okay, 1 Peter... To 15 is 2nd Peter 
For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So you do good not because uh, you want to look good, but it's to put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. And you get a lot of confidence. So that's good. All right. Um, what are some other questions that would come up in a discussion with somebody about the word? Okay. And this is a main one because I offered, so good, really good friend of mine, probably one of my, you know, I played football with him in college, really good friend of mine. He, I, we were 19 or something. And I remember we, we asked him if he wanted to know the Lord. And he, he said this, he said, well, so if somebody who's, you know, been like a murderer and a rapist their whole life, they accept Christ on their deathbed, they go to heaven. Yet I, who haven't done anything even remotely bad my whole life, will not accept him and go to hell. I don't understand it. I don't want any part of it. It's a very, very valid question, right? And basically it comes down to why do, why do bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people? That is extremely valid, okay? So let's go ahead and look at this question real quick. Okay, so the first person I wanted to talk about regarding the question is Job. Okay. Um, why, why do I want to talk about Job? Okay, so Job has this very like weird connotation in Job 1 and 2. So Job is somebody who, you know, was a good person who went through a lot of bad, right? And so as a believer... Yeah, it's just it's not the it's not the best story, right? Uh, it's actually a poem, believe it or not. The, the book of Job is actually written as a poem. It's written. It's next to Psalms and Proverbs because it's written in the same uh, uh, style. Okay. Uh, the first two chapters, however, are kind of like the intro, so it's not it's not a poem. Okay. So I kind of wanted to go over those real quick because those are those are important. Okay. Um, so essentially people use this, you know, especially non-believers will use this story as like, well, you see how God and the devil are like buddies. You see it, you know, they're talking to each other to, to hurt this guy. And it's, it, it, it's a really like worldly way to look at it. Okay. But if you look at it as a believer, I'll help you. Okay. I'll help you. All right. Um, I'm just going to read. Okay, I'm just going to read this. Okay, so I'm going to start in verse 6. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves. Oh, this is chapter 1, by the way. Uh, please read this on your own. Please study it. Whatever you got to do. Okay. Uh, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. So it's very important here. The devil is in complete disarray when God comes to him. And this, again, our language is unable to portray this. Okay, going back to the American language, how shallow it is. It's very important you understand that. The The terms that in the Hebrew here describe the devil as in complete, like, anxious, like, he's in a, he's in an anxious state. He's just, he, he doesn't know what's going on. God totally threw him off by, by, by pulling him aside. Okay. Um, then the Lord said to, in verse eight, then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who 
one who fears God and shuns evil. So God's pointing out this, this holy man, right? So Satan answered the Lord and said, does Joe fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him? Now, this is very important. Anything the devil says is a lie. So please be aware when the devil states that there is a hedge around him, that is something the devil states, not something God states. Okay. Have you not made a hedge around him or around his household and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his, on, on his, his person. So, you know, don't hurt him. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So it is perceived that this conversation is like a, we're going to, we're going to mess this guy up. Right. However, the devil was coming out of this like disarrayed state. He was probably doing all kinds of nonsense. We don't know what the devil doesn't actually know what he's doing. He's just doing like the best quote of all time or best bad guy quote is the Joker in bat in the dark night. When he says, He's like, if I caught a, I'm like a dog. If I caught a car, I wouldn't know what to do with it. I just do. That's exactly how I see Satan. Is he just doing? He's not like, he has no rhyme or reason. He seems organized. He is not. He is not organized. As humans, we make him organized because we tell him what we like. We give him the power. So please keep him in his rightful place. He is not organized. The devil points him out. The devil points out the righteous man, not because he wants to hurt him, but because Job has the tools to handle what the devil has to throw at him. So the next time you go through something, take it as a compliment. If it's something, you know, there's a difference between like serious like issues. Like I think of, okay, like Deshaun Watson's going through this whole civil trial uh, with these women, which, by the way, I think it's totally farce. Now, everybody, you know, say what you want. This whole thing, and if you don't know who Deshaun Watson is, go look him up. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about. I just think it's very interesting. The minute he wanted to leave the Houston Texans, he was all of a sudden 20, you know, 20 plus women came forward and said he was, you know, doing wrong stuff to them, right? In their groups, you know, and whatever he was doing, whether it was like a treatment or a massage or whatever. I just think it's very interesting that the minute he wanted to leave and he made it public, all of a sudden, all these women came out of the woodwork. Sounds like the owners who are known to be shady people paid a bunch of people off. That's what it sounds like to me. This is an example to me of this, of Job. I think of Deshaun Watson as Job. And Deshaun Watson's a, a, a public a, a public believer in Jesus Christ. And that's why I believe he was one who was, you know, like, and maybe he did mess up somewhere one time, maybe twice, right? I'm not saying he didn't sin or mess up. I'm just saying 20 plus women is a little ridiculous. And I really think people got paid off. Okay. So that's, that's my opinion. I'm going to leave it at that. But anyway, th- that's, that's to me a real world example of this situation. Okay. Now there's a verse in Proverbs 24, 16. It says the righteous may fall seven times and rise again. That's a key verse because this is an example of Job falling many, many times throughout the entire book of Job. And he 
gets back up. And it's because he has the tools to get back up. As Christians, you are armed for tribulation. So keep that in mind. You are armed for it. Not, you know, not everybody is. And God will use the Christian to pull the enemy away from other people who are le- who are more vulnerable. Okay. And I do believe that. And I use Job as my example. So, um, so going to the next thing. So as Americans, there's a lot, you know, we, we have a very comfortable life. Modern, most modern societies have comfortable lives. Not everybody. There's parts of this world that are, you know, extremely devastated with poverty and bad things happen to people, you know, uh, other, other, uh, political group, uh, um, countries with, you know, certain doctrines and you, you, you can't worship the Lord. You know, there's other places in the world that are just way off, way worse than us. And you know what I hear a lot is how good we have it. Right. And how, how easy it is for us. And we should, you know, like if we had it harder, we would crumble, but you know what? I I'm going to combat that thought because a lot of people use it. And the people in those harder situations, we couldn't be in those situations. And that's why we're not there. Okay. And they couldn't be in our situation where we have to deal with, you know, our, our, our death as an American is a social death. You know, we're not confronted with physical death or physical, uh, or, 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 uh, persecution of the word. We are confronted with persecution of our social life. Our social life should be boring, in my opinion. Now, not, you know, God uses, you know, uh, social platforms to help people, you know, share the word. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that your social life, the things that you do on your, on your social media platforms, should look a lot different than other people's. A lot different. And it's a hard thing to do. That's why I stay off of it. I stay away from social media because I am not one of those people who can just be, you know, publicly boring and want to, you know, be in that realm of things. I just, just stay out of it. I, I, I just choose, you know, I don't, I just want to be a part of it. I stay out of it and it's done me a lot of good. I really do. So unless you're called to that, to that platform, to that place, I'd stay away, my opinion. Okay. But I would not downplay your role as an American because the American economy holds up the entire world economy. So you going to your job every day, making money, paying your taxes, going to the store, buying your food, paying taxes on it. It goes a lot further than you think in the entire, in the whole scheme of things. Okay. You're helping a lot of people out, believe it or not. And it's a hard, you know, you you might think I'm some, you know, home. I don't know. You might have some opinion about it, whatever. That's okay. I'm trying to help, you know, the Americans see that they're not just this glutton and this indulgent fascist. Okay. You know, you, you have a purpose. Okay. And it's, and it's, it's to die to yourself socially every day and it's hard, but you can do it now. Um, yeah. So that's the question of destiny. So to reiterate the question of morality, you know, why do good things happen to good people and bad things happen to, or why do bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people? Uh, there's actually a really good description in the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 13. Um, Jesus uses the parable of the tares, uh, of the of the wheat and the tares, 
is the parable. And um, if you want to go there, the let's just go there real quick. It's under um, verse 24, chapter 13 of Matthew, verse 24. So, uh, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not go sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them. We gather the wheat into my barn. So this is a perfect example of how you know bad people can reap benefits the same as good people. God uses this parable and he explains it later on. He says the tares are the sons of the devil, or you know, the the seed that the devil sowed, or the sons of the of, of the evil one. And the wheat are my sons, the ones that I'm going to keep. And then at the end of the age, I will collect the wheat and the tares together, and I will separate the tares from the wheat, and they will burn, you know, in the furnace of fire, the tares. So, you know, we're in a world, and things, you know, there's a lot of things that can be explained. There's also a lot that can't. And when there's evil people doing evil things, and yet they're still you know, uh, being successful, having, you know, everything that they need, getting away with murder, essentially. Um, these people are being, are growing in the same field as people that are of, you know, of noble character of, you know, the wheat. And this is a perfect example of how God continues to bless those, who, even despite you know, who they are, he still blesses them because they're in the same field as those he's, he wants to bless. And it's almost as if he wants them to grow together because it's creating, you know, an environment where you're not, you know, it's not this perfect environment and you're learning and you're growing and you're changing and, and things are, uh, you know, it's not always working out for you all the time and that's okay. You know, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I always I always use that. You know, when, when you see people getting away with something, it's like, don't, you know, don't bother yourself with people that get away with stuff. Like, just don't. It, it, I, I don't know why I learned this a long time ago, but it's just bring me, it, it's brought me a lot of peace. When I have, you know, somebody who I, I'm like, I'm confused why they're getting away with this, yet I, I don't care because in the, on the last day, God will God will take care of it. And then they will know, you know, what they were doing was wrong. And you know what? That's not on, it's not on you. You know, sometimes you're putting someone's life to correct them, right? That's not, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about someone legitimately out in the open, doing evil, getting away with it. And you know it, you got to let that go. It's not up to you, you know, it, and then, you know, people try to evade laws too. You know, that's something you just got to let go. Uh, there's just so much more to life than to sit there and dwell on the fact that somebody's getting away with something. There's actually a verse in uh, Psalms. If you go to Psalms 37, uh, one of my favorite Psalms, it says, do not fret. For verse one, it says, do not fret 
because of evildoers, nor be envious the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass, and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. If you, and if you go down to verse 8 and 9, it says, Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it only causes harm. For evil doers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Referring to when we come and reign with Jesus in the 1,000 uh, year reign. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. The wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. Yeah, so I use verse, Psalm 37. Meditate on that. I encourage you to memorize that. Use the, use the strategies I gave in some of my previous ones. You can go back and listen on how to memorize a chapter of scripture and that's just a good chapter to memorize for that reason if you're struggling in that area another question that could arise um, regarding you know the christian faith is how can a loving god be so judgmental or punishing or unjust you know in so many ways you know you read in the old testament We'll take a story, for example, the, the story in Exodus. I call this the tragedy in the desert. Um, the people of Israel were under a tyrannical, you know, the Pharaoh. He's a, he's, he, they were under oppression and tyranny being in Egypt. And how did they get there is kind of even a greater story because Joseph... In Genesis 37, you can read this. Joseph was a brother of, you know, 11 other, you know, it was him and 11 other kids. And they basically hated him for having, you know, God's favor, essentially. He was a, you know, he had all these visions and he was talking about it and he um, kind of rubbed it in to his brothers and you know nowadays you just kind of like beat up your brother or you like give him a noogie or you annoy him or you do something like that at that time there was no understanding of that and they would just kill you know they wanted to kill him and they essentially instead of killing him what they did is they sold him into you know they sold him into slavery acted like he you know they found him dead that type of thing to the dad and ironically later you know long story short they don't have any food, and the only food that's around is in is in Egypt. So the family has to go to Egypt, and it turns out Joseph is like second in charge in Egypt, which um, is you know kind of you know it's super ironic that that Joseph ended up being in this place of you know high order, despite the tyranny that was brought upon him by his brothers you know, unjust, you want to talk about an unjust situation where you did nothing wrong except for being annoying and you were thrown into, you know, slavery for years and then you got thrown into prison and then you end up being second in charge in Egypt and then your brothers come crying back to you for food. It's, it's very ironic. And it's also a lesson to be learned for those who, you know, are trying to get, you know, are upset with somebody for having more than them 
trying to destroy them, maybe not quite getting, you know, being able to destroy them. And then ironically, they're giving you the food that you need to survive. Very, you know, very interesting story. But anyway, that's how the uh, the Israelites or the the Jews got into Egypt is this story. Okay, that's where they that's how they got there. Joseph was under tyranny and slavery. Eventually, got risen up to power. His family ends up moving to Egypt, where you know they have offspring, and eventually, the Egyptians you know see them as you know they're second tier citizens because they came in initially as like needing food. And so they would work for the food and now they're just, you know, it's a slave nation. It's an enslaved nation. And, you know, obviously it's gone, you know, it's next level slavery where they're just being used to, you know, to live there. And uh, God eventually, you know, gets them out of this situation, which the brothers were the reasons that they got in the situation in the first place. Right. But the crazy thing is, is God leads them into the desert. All right. And this is the important part is God with like when, when we as believers are being, you know, formed and changed into what God wants us to be. We're going to be in a place of tyranny at the beginning. Okay. Then we're going to go through a desolate. We're going to go through a desert for a period of time and it's not going to be fun. It's going to be very tedious. There's going to be things that come up. God, it says that God sent snakes to come and bite the Israelites because they were complaining so much. You're going to be in a state you might complain. And you're going to wonder where God is. But it's important to understand that you have to go through this. And God wants you to face these situations so that you will become stronger. The tragedy of the whole thing is that all of these people that were complaining never actually got to see the promised land which they're you know, their aunt, uh, their uh, offspring get to see that they don't. So, you know, for us to understand this, you know, you're in a place of tyranny, uh, oppression, right? You move to the desert, desolate place where you have to basically grow and learn and, and change and get formed. And then you might, you know, you have to die there before you can get into the promised land. So you're your flesh, the things that you're holding on to, have to die in the desert. They die there. And then you can see the promised land. And the tragedy for these people is that, you know, they were brought out of this miraculous, you know, out of this situation in, in Egypt, right? Miraculously, in Exodus, go read this in Exodus. Just read Exodus and it'll, you know, you could read the whole story. Miraculous situation getting out of getting out of Egypt then they never actually get to see the place where they thought they were going to go and they complain the whole time and you know there's a lot of disobedience and I always you know didn't understand why Moses never got to go in but Moses was the leader of this group and it says that Moses hit the rock twice when he was asking for water he and it um, that supposedly was the disobedient part. He actually sinned against God in that instance. And that's why he never actually got to go in to the promised land. And I always, you know, as, as even as a Christian, you struggle with this. You're like, well, God, you, you didn't deliver them. Not true. As a matter of fact, they were the reasons they got themselves in that situation. First, he got them out of the situation. He gave them obstacles to confront. They had a difficult time confronting him. So 
he knew that the people who got out of Egypt initially were not the people to inherit the land that he had called them to inherit. He knew it had to have been, it has to be the next generation of kids who learn from the parents and, and, and the things that they saw, you know, God obviously taught them things that they, uh, that, you know, showed them what their parents were doing wrong, obviously. And, and as you know, after the last person died in that generation, they were able to now go into the promised land. And it's just, it, it, it is a tragedy for those people that initially got out of Egypt, out of tyranny. But the, the, the moral of the story is that you have to confront your problems. And as a believer, you get out of tyranny, you're going to go through a desolate place, and God wants you to confront issues. And you have to die there before you can see the promised land. And to a non-believer, somebody who's questioning you know, this story and like God's motives, you tell them, God wants us to embrace suffering, essentially. Jesus did it himself. And the idea of suffering is like, you know, it sounds really bad. And, you you know, like being from the United States, I'm like, you know, obviously suffering is kind of like, what is it actually? You know, what is it actually? Um, there's a lot of people, there's other countries, other countries in the world, people are actually suffering daily, you know. And... To me, as an American, suffering is living a, an upright life, an ethical life to the best of my ability and not giving in to all these temptations that are offered to me on a daily basis. Being able, you know, just get, you know, just always, you know, complaining about, you know, oh, my, you know, my AC isn't working. Oh, I need to get a new AC or, um, so-and-so is treating, you know, gossiping me about work at, or gossiping me about me at work. And I, you know, I'm going to go ahead and, and, and backlash at them and gossip about them also. Uh, you know, complaining about, you know, not, you know, there's a food shortage or something. And it's like, it's ridiculous. Just go get something else. You know, the, the oh, oh, I go to a restaurant. Something's overcooked. Complaining. Something's not cooked right. Complaining. Fighting these urges to just complain, but I've been like, you know, I, I live in such abundance that it's like ridiculous to complain about anything. And I'm not saying that it's, you know, you're terrible if you don't, but I, it's the idea is to combat, you know, the privilege with doing everything uprightly, treating people fairly. When there's a server there, you treat them well. You 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 tip them no matter what, no matter how they did. When there's somebody who's serving you, you treat them with utmost, the utmost respect, as if it was somebody with a higher stature. You know, in James chapter two, it says this starts in verse two. James chapter two, two verse two. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes. And say to him, you sit here in this good place. And say to the poor man, you stand there, or you sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among, uh, among yourselves or become judges with evil thoughts? So this is the spot in where you treating people, no matter what their 
social class, ethnic background, uh, uh, sexual orientation. It's very important. This verse tells you, you know, to combat the idea that you need to, you know, server, you showed up with, you know, you, you have a burnt piece of something, you know, something wasn't prepared properly. It's not the server's fault, right? Uh, something wasn't, you know, done correctly. It, you got to fight that. You got to fight the idea that stuff needs to be given to you, you know, in a certain way when really, you know, you're, you're, you're so far blessed. Just be thankful for what you do have. And, you know, somebody would probably argue with me about this, but I, to me, I feel that God is calling me to just be above that and not let those types of things bother me. Letting things bother us is where, you know, in, in any situation, it's, you want to be prepared in any situation just to be patient. Just always be patient, no matter what. Um, no matter how difficult it is, because Christ suffered first. And there's just not a lot to point to, you know, especially for me, someone living in America, for in the United States, there's just not a lot to point to for suffering, you know. There are people that suffer in the United States. I'm not saying that. There are people who are in worse situations than me who are suffering, okay. However, I would say the vast majority of people are not suffering and they're in a place of privilege and that's okay. But there will be, there will be people who come to slander you and beat you up over that position that you are in. And it's important that you live ethically and uprightly in that position so that really it's, it's of no avail to, it's, it's of no avail when they come at you, they, they have nothing on you. And that is also something that they say uh, that Titus talks about. Yeah, Titus chapter 2, verse 7. It says, or starting in verse, actually starting in verse 6. It says, likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, and incorruptibility. Sound speech that cannot be condemned. That one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. You know, using this as your, you know, grounding for why you do something correctly. It's a hard thing to do, to do the right thing, especially when no one's watching. Having that integrity that they're talking about here, having that is really difficult, especially when you're young. Like, when I was young, I just remember being in school, like high school, and everybody was, you know, we all looked the same. You know, and even prior to that, like, and I spoke about this in my, in the parable of the, of the peril, uh, of the tares and the, and the wheat, but when you're young, nobody notices the difference. But when you get older is when people know the difference. When the things that you say are very, you know, calculated, you think about what you say, you're not trying to get up, get, get up, get by on people. You're not trying to steal from somebody. You're not trying to um, take advantage of a situation when it, you know, just to get ahead. Our purpose is not to just get ahead. It's to live an upright, ethical life, especially in the situations that we are in. And then, you know, live a pleasing, a, a life that's pleasing to God in a way that, that he can be proud, you know, pride. I, I, I'm very careful when I use that word because that is the original sin. But that he would be, see you as, as his son, Okay. That God would see you as a son because of the way you live your life, no matter your situation, but always doing it and knowing that you are being watched at all times. 
And this was your brother James with the God's Will podcast.